0: Y'all
1: ready to get funky? the most important part? Two, one. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Cut Talk Radio. Our guest today holds a bachelor's in environmental biology from Cal State Poly in Pomona. She's also, oh, actually, let me correct it. It says here her PhD is in progress, but I just found out she's actually just. <laughs> Got obtained her Ph.D. on Thursday, so congratulations! She just got her Ph.D. in plant biology with an ecology track from U.C. Riverside. Uh, she's also an she's also an expert on invasive plant species and how these and how these plants invasions shake up the ecosystem. Her journey in ecology began in her youth, traveling back and forth from the vibrant landscapes of her Southern California home to the enchanting realms of Zacatecas, Mexico, where her parents grew up. She's been captivated by diverse flora and fauna since her earliest days, and her true aspiration is to build a bridge connecting rigorous research with real-world solutions. So, let's welcome our guest. Clarissa, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. To start off, could you please introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and the work you've been doing, which sounds pretty interesting, by the way.
2: Yeah, thank you for the introduction, Baul. Um, Yeah, so like you said, I just got my PhD officially on Thursday. And so, um, and a lot of that work for my research has really been focused on understanding how these invasive species um, establish spread and really impact our native species because um, a lot of our like native biodiversity, they give us a lot of ecosystem services that um, that we depend on like air purification, water regulation, nutrient cycling and so invasive species can really negatively impact that and so um and one of the main leading drivers of biodiversity loss Mm. and so really one of the things i'm just excited to do is really get back to my roots because this is stuff that like my family did in mexico like in the rancho you know so i'm just doing it but in a different capacity
1: right yeah that's interesting Uh, it's also interesting how like in history like conservation and all that stuff like plant work has been more connected with humans you know like because we were more connected with nature but i think like most people today in urban cities they find them they don't really find themselves in what we would consider nature most often you know most of the time they're just in the city and uh you know some people's only interaction with plant life and fauna or whatever is like more of seeing weeds growing out of the concrete or like or like just seeing the trees planted on the side of the road you know like that's as much as they go with interacting with you know plants so um You know, here in Cali, we actually have uh, palm trees, so, you know, we're blessed. We got those, like, those look cool. But (laughs) besides that, you know, um, I say all that to say, you know, if I could ask you, why should we, you know, you kind of said it a little bit, but just to get in depth, why should we care about plants? And what kind of trouble are we in for if we continue to ignore uh, some of the more pressing issues concerning ecology? Uh, One example that comes to mind is the controversy right now around the Amazon rainforest you know, that's a pretty big ecosystem and people are kind of just taking it for granted and saying, hey, let's knock down this land. So again, um, why should we care and what kind of trouble are we in for? We continue to ignore it.
2: Yeah, so you brought some good points of like people really don't um, appreciate. So there's plants all around us, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And we actually call it like plant blindness because um, they're all around us. Nature's all around us. We just kind of choose not to see it. Um, and so we, and a a lot especially in like lower income areas, there actually is like a lack of, um, vegetation around there. So you see, um, for example, I just, um, in Riverside, three people just came in. And so, um, we, in more of our low income areas, we're actually putting in, um, trees that can provide shade, food, fruit trees for the community and stuff like that. And so I just think that people do, we do have this connection with nature, but, uh, oftentimes, we don't know that it's there, and so you just kind of need somebody to pull that out of you. Um, because if you talk to people, people love plants, you know, house plants is, are a common hobby, like,
1: yeah,
2: the house plants are pretty common, people like their gardens and stuff, and so you just kind of have to like talk to people and um, kind of see like where their interest is and try to get um, try to get them excited about plants. But if right. we keep ignoring, um, invasive plants so if you think about how much we travel around the world you know we could get around trains cars walking on ships um so that comes with the chance of accidentally taking a species with you um and then that's actually how a lot of species become invasive if people bring them love like oh my gosh this plant's gonna be so cute in my garden they put it in their garden oh, and then somehow
0: yeah. yeah and
2: then sometimes um it'll just start expanding and out competing our native species and The reason why we need our native plants is because they provide a lot of services for us um and we don't really realize that but the first plants are basically the baseline for everything animals need the plants you know they make our clothes they make our food and so um we really need to pay more attention to plants and that's kind of like i love getting people excited about plants
1: yeah i'm excited just listening to you so that's that's interesting because we definitely i think plant blindness that's something that i've never heard before but that's definitely I think a a side effect of living in the city of not again like not being in nature not watching the process of a plant growing and then um but you also mentioned how people do take up that hobby so is it just a matter of education like do you think if enough people got educated we could actually um become a more because you see like the way I look at it right and and um you know and, and technically humans are the worst invasive species when it comes to plants you know and when most people say that they're saying it in a cynical way I think it's unquestionable but I don't mean it to say like we're a parasite what I mean is that Mm -hmm. historically when we come in we tend to mess up the land or you know for our for our selfish purposes and again it's not a cynical thing I'm just saying that since it's happened you know hopefully through the awareness of that happening we can hopefully educate and promote ecological studies so that people can or not just people but society cities can become more eco-friendly and even and tell me what you think about this because i just kind of came up with this in my head i don't even know if it's real but like um eco-integration like somehow like instead of going on top of what's already there trying to use it to integrate into what we're already building and i know some of that um I don't I'm not sure how familiar you are with this but I know that you mentioned how we get um food you know obviously food we get uh regulation of the ecosystem from plants we get the animals are being fed by the plants even medicine you know I think penicillin came from a plant Mm -hmm. uh so you know how how do you see that future playing out do you think one day we will be a little bit more of an eco smart eco integrated type of civilization
2: yeah, so it sounds kind of like what you're talking about is what we call social ecological systems. So we're trying to do a much better job of um, integrating society with ecology because that is an issue is we kind of see ourselves as apart from nature. But like mm-hmm. you said, we are absolutely changing nature. We get to a system. We develop it. You know, we have to first take anything that's there, like you're saying, like an Amazon. Yeah. Um, like one of the big issues they have down there is just clear-cutting forests to make room to grow meat for like Mm -hmm. patties and stuff like that. And so um, I think moving forward, we are doing a much better job um, because actually invasive species are really associated with like billions of dollars in economic costs. And so that definitely affects the society. Um, Yeah, I think we spend about $121 billion a year on trying to manage invasive species. Um, so, yeah, I think um, moving forward, the field of science is trying to do a much better job of communicating science with the community. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite things about invasive species is that um, basically anybody can participate. So some of my research actually came from uh, contributions from community members. So um, there's these, like, awesome apps, like iNaturalist, um, where you can go around and post a picture. So um, this is what I recommend. So community science, you know literally anybody as long as you have a smartphone or something if you can snap a picture and it'll grab your location um and if you don't know what the species is if you're just like i found this plant here um it's a great community because then scientists can go on there um and then identify it for you but then um we can actually use that data point in research to try to help these problems so Mm, i think it's really beautiful because like anybody can contribute to these issues yeah
1: and you know what that's that's actually pretty interesting because when i was younger I remember that like in astronomy, for example, it there was a similar type of, um, network. Like, like you could, you could go and like make reports of like the moon or something like Jupiter or the stars, you could keep track of it. And then scientists would take that from you, you know, like you could give it to us and they would use that in their data. So then the community becomes a part of the site. So that's pretty, that's dope. I think that's a, that's a very good idea, you know, and, and, um, you know, when i was doing research for this i was like speaking of the plant species i was like damn there's a lot of plants like I, you know like <laughs> yeah. like because you, so, cause you might look down at the ground and see like a purple plant a yellow plant one slightly different ye- yellow shade and they're all like different plants and i'm like god there's a lot of plants yeah so, so yeah like i think it's definitely underappreciated that's one thing that i found fascinating that it's kind of like bird watching you know it's like there's a bunch of them different ones so uh but yeah so now i do kind of want to move into the um, you know your work your actual on the ground work um so what i've gathered so far again biological invasions uh it's kind of like a party right it's like you're having a party someone shows up to your party and crashes it um seems to be what the (laughs) analogy is for invasive species but you also mentioned the importance of data analysis right because it's hard to say what's going on without data uh Mm -hmm so i kind of want to get into some technical things here some aspects that may affect this invasion behavior so uh the first thing i want to bring up is climate so uh weather right and this could be local Mm -hmm. systems the greater globe but let's say even like in a local system right uh Mm some place that's usually in a drought or something like that and then you got a lot of rain for a week or something like that just to change the shift in climate How does that um, act as an invitation for plant invasion or what kind of tricks do invasive species because what we'll find throughout the episode is that plants are actually pretty seemingly intelligent right from like what I've gathered they know what they're doing or at least they've evolved to do things in a certain manner for for optimized survival so climate let's start with climate how does that create the conditions for invasion.
2: Yeah, and so um, you brought up a lot of good points there. Um, so climate change is, like, the number one driver of biodiversity loss. Um, and, yeah, invasive species, that's can be really tricky. Like you said, like, they've evolved, you know, to be really good at uh, mm. to, at surviving. Um, and, yeah, uh, so you're in L.A., I'm in Riverside. We're only, like, an hour or two away. Um, yeah, and so, fun. yeah, and so we can, like, here we have – you know, very variable climate, and so sometimes it's really hot, sometimes, you know, we get these random, like, rainstorm. Hillary just passed by, and so, like, how are these crazy climate events contributing to invasive species? Um, And so, actually, one of the concerns is that um, when you get these extreme climate events, like, for plants, because I study invasive plants mostly, only actually. Um, So like seeds can be carried up in these extreme events with these like winds Mm -hmm. and then they can be shifted right so then they can be introduced into new areas. Um, But like you were just saying like in the desert basically with Hillary, it's usually very dry and so a lot of our native plants really evolved to be like really used to not having that much water or they tend to have these cues where our native plants won't basically grow until they start getting enough steady water. And for invasive species, basically any rain that they get, they're just opportunistic. And so they'll immediately start growing. Um, But that doesn't always mean it's bad. So sometimes um, it can be bad, what we call priority effects. So that's when um, your, let's say our native species typically grow around um, January, December in Mm -hmm. California, at least our plants that live for like one year. And then these invasive species, they actually grow, like, with the first rain that comes in, like, November or whatnot. Um, And they essentially end up taking up, like, all the resources, like, all the water, all the space, so that by the time our native plants are used to, have evolved to start growing, then the invasive species basically took a bunch of those resources, um, and then that can lead to negative effects.
1: That's pretty fascinating how... How that happens you know i mean it's interesting because you, again you don't really think of plants as actively surviving or fighting you know but there's a whole yeah they're always competing <laughs> yeah. and um so again you mentioned your expertise in invasive species in ecology and so what role exactly does an ecologist play in um predicting and preventing and managing the invasive species you know mm-hmm. what um how do you stay a step ahead Of nature because nature seems to know its way around so how do you solve that puzzle
2: yeah that's one of my favorite things is because um, our environment is changing more rapidly and so it's getting harder to try to predict how are these species gonna respond with this climate change and so that's one of my favorite things is data analysis so like having long-term data really helps so if we have if we can look at the history of what's been going on um, then we can kind of try to predict, okay, how may these species respond in the future? And so um, the only problem is that um, to have long-term data, it's very expensive. And so unfortunately, we don't have a lot of that. Um, but basically to be one step ahead, we just constantly have to be doing research. Oh, and something I didn't mention. So why I love invasive species. is like every single invader is basically pretty unique. So that's mm-hmm. why there's not like one size fits all for management. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of depending on which invader you're trying to go after. Um, they all influence their environment differently. So in order to like effectively manage it, you need to know what is it doing to the environment so that we can intervene. To
1: stop. So it's, it sounds like a case by case basis then, right? You really got to figure out what's going on. Yeah, basically. Um, and how, let's say, how, um, how do you come to the conclusion? Like, how do you identify uh, whether it's better to, I don't even know if this is a case, but is it better to, in some cases, to allow coexistence between a new species and the existing species? Or, like, what's the decision between, okay, we can let it coexist, it's not hurting the ecosystem, or this thing is going to devastate the ecosystem? So what's the decision process in that?
2: That's such a great question, and that's something we're still working on. Um, it's kind of like, at what, yeah, basically, at what point is it not even worth managing anymore and we should just leave it in the system? Mm -hmm. Um, And so a way we do that is basically um, just looking, quantifying impacts. So that's why it's so important to basically go and study this plant and see how is it actually impacting. Um, Because every year we're actually getting more and more species introductions. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Um, And so it's increasing. And so there's no way you can manage, like, thousands of species. um especially with a lot of them being on a case-by-case basis um sorry i just blanked
1: what oh no no no! i was saying so like how do you decide between uh, allowing coexistence and prioritizing conserving the already existing plants in the ecosystem yeah
2: and so um so yeah by quantifying impact and so sometimes um you'll go and look and basically we'll kind of basically compare species and be like, which one is basically causing more severe impacts and is worth um, basically using our limited resources for it. But when you're talking about like, do we let it coexist or not? That's actually like, we're starting to see what we call like, um, like novel ecosystems. And these are like, at this point now, we just have our native species and other non-native species that are introduced. but they're not really like negatively impacting and so we just kind
1: of leave them to code it i have a question so that brings up in my mind you know like when you go to home depot or lowe's you know they got like mm-hmm. a bunch of plants and um you know like they're pretty exotic looking plants and mm-hmm. i've never seen some of these plants in california so how i mean are there i mean that is there are there invasive plants in being sold at Home Depot? I mean, I don't know.
2: Um. Yes, there are so many yeah, invasive yeah. plants that are sold at Lowe's, Home <laughs> right, Depot, yeah. Lose Armstrong. Yeah. So um, unfortunately, that's something that we could do way better. Like Australia actually is really strict with their biocontrol policies, yeah. uh, but United States we are not, and so. Um, a bunch of plants behind me, actually, these are all non-native. So um, the key thing is you can have non-native plants, but um, I keep all of mine in flower. So as long as I don't let them go to seed, and also they're all inside my house, so it's not like they're going to escape.
1: Oh, right, right, and, right, right.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so I always urge people, if you can, to try to buy native plants. And also, if you, if you plant um, native plants instead of invasive plants, you tend to get more butterflies, more pollinators, and it's just, and you also save money on water because our plants have evolved to grow without water versus these inside. I have a lot of them a lot. Oh
1: yeah, that's right. Huh? Yeah, that's interesting. So there's ways to mitigate. There's ways to have an exotic garden. You just gotta be responsible about it, and you have to yeah be educated. Okay. Yeah, I think because that was the first thing that came to my mind. Like you should probably we should probably have some law that says like don't. <laughs> Don't just let people plant these things all over the ground because interesting though. Um, okay, so let's see, we went through the stuff. Uh, balances. Okay, so how how do invasive species so you mentioned they're taking water resources, things like that. That's probably the major one. But are there, what are some less common but interesting ways that you see the invasive species disrupt balances. And uh, are there any strategies in those specific strategies in those cases?
2: Yeah. So, um, being in California, you know, you're, you're we're familiar with these like really big wildfires. Um, so, a lot of those wildfires are actually because of invasive species. So, um, we have, you know, we have like um, our California hills are kind of like shrubby, um, and then we have like our forest or whatnot. But um, the key thing is there that um, between these shrubs and underneath trees, there's usually spaces in between. And the thing is, um, we got with it's um, and grasses that came from um, Europe. So mostly it's European grasses that they only live for one year. But basically, um, they come into these ecosystems, uh, and instead of leaving these like spaces that uh, we normally have, they end up taking up. And increasing basically connectivity between all the plants and so one little spark it'll basically carry the fire so it adds mm. extra litter and it'll burn uh, it basically invasive species can increase wildfire risks and then the first thing to come back after the fire is invasive species and so that's um, one of the ways um, that invasive species are actually contributing to this like really bad problem of wildfires here in
1: California right um... So that's a bit of a local example. Do you also have like a, is there a, is there like a, any plant that's, I mean, I guess the globe is pretty big, but is there any case where you've had a plant that's like had more of a global effect, like where everybody knows, like you can't have this type of plant or something like that?
2: Yeah. Um, well, kudzu, one that we had kind of talked about or that yeah. you had, yeah. Oh, so yeah, kudzu, yeah, I got that. yeah. Yeah. So we could talk about that one later if you want, but that one is one that is pretty globally known as like, um... Don't plant it because it will grow really fast and it will just take over your whole ecosystem. Yeah, but that's uh, one that's pretty known globally.
1: Okay, yeah, cool. So, um, oh, wait, so now, can I send something yeah, else course, that's not a plant? Any cats.
2: cats. Cats are globally known to be invasive, and on many countries uh, and many states, there's specific jobs to actually um, go around hunting cats. Um, And in Australia, the um, aboriginal and indigenous groups are a really big part of that because cats, they kill a lot of wildlife and are driving biodiversity down. Um, And so um, cats are one that almost every place usually has like a like a program in place to go after
1: them. Those damn cats. Um, Put a bell on your cat. Okay, so now. All right. So we've got kind of over the general for the most part i think um but now i've got a list of ways that i looked up that plants you know specific tactics that plants use so if you could like i'll introduce it and then if you could kind of give us your experience of, of coming you know into contact with these things and then how you feel uh and it impacts the the ecosystem um yeah. so the first one is it says uh, certain invasive plant species utilize unique visual or chemical cues to attract pollinators away from native plants so that's interesting so how does a plant convince this bee to go to it and not the other plant
2: yeah that's a good question and so um that's one of the things um so there's a bunch of mechanisms of like how invasive species can actually be invasive uh but not we call it like novel weapons or like novel chemicals and that's like these plants have these like, these chemicals, um, a lot of these phytochemicals that they emit that basically our natives don't have. And so it it helps them. And so sometimes these things that they emit, um, emit, um, they can actually um, reduce, um... I'm sorry, I'm blanking. Oh yeah, so they can actually reduce the microbial community. So not only do they emit through their leaves and like flowers to try to attract pollinators, but um, through the roots, actually, they can also emit chemicals that will end up killing a bunch of the organisms that live in the soil. So then that impacts um, native, uh, impacts how the soil works. Um, but in terms of bees, so actually, I'm not a big pollinator person, so I'm not sure. <laughs> but um, but basically, our... Um, the way it basically steals pollinators that I'm aware of from our natives is that um, it basically just outcompetes that native. And now that plant that the, that the bee originally used to go to is no longer there in like the big abundances that it used to be. So then it starts going to the invasive plant. And now that plant is getting all the services instead of our native plant.
1: Right. Does that have anything to do with like the mechanisms that are going on inside of like a, a fly trap, like a Venus fly trap? Are you like you know how Venus like they like somehow they convince the the fly to go and then they eat it? Like so that's some sort of chemical that's doing that, right?
2: Yeah, so a lot so sometimes certain plants can emit these like um these scents that the insects can then pick up on. Um but yeah, so carnivorous plants are amazing. I have a collection of some as well. Um and yeah, it's just amazing how plants evolve to be in those environments. So carnivorous plants actually evolved to eat insects because they grew in nutrient-poor soils. And so they evolved to be like, okay, I can't get this phosphorus in the soils and nitrogen, so now I'm just going to, like, evolve this way to digest insects. So plants are amazing.
1: (laughs) That's fascinating. So let's take a little detour into the carnivorous plant realm. Um, So is that what it is? They just evolve, plants evolving in places where they can't get nutrients from the soil. They have to get it from above ground. Is there, what's the, what are some of the more more interesting carnivorous plants that you, that you're aware of? Okay, um, trip, obviously.
2: So, yeah, the Venus flytrap is really interesting because, um, of the way it actually traps the, uh, the insect because basically we have these little trigger hairs, um, and, they basically, the way they snap is based off of touch. So we call it like um, stigma nasty, so anything to do with touch. So if you touch the hairs, um, but it has to be like two hairs within less than like, I forgot how many milliseconds. Wow. Then, then it triggers it and, and t- basically tells the plant, hey, there's something sitting there, so close it. Hmm. But the cool thing about plants is um, it's not... Uh, like our memory, but plants do have memory in terms of, like, have you heard of um, Mimosa pudica, which is supposed to be like the sensitive plant? Like, you touch it and then the leaves fold.
1: Oh, no, I've never heard about that.
2: Oh, no, you should Google it. Okay, so this plant, um, if you touch the leaves, it kind of like freaks out and it curls in. So it's really awesome. That sounds
1: good.
2: Um, yeah. yeah, but the, the plants also have this, like, somewhat of like ecological memory because if you touch that plant enough times, then it's like, eh, you're not a threat, and it doesn't close mm, anymore, got you. and so they're like constantly taking in cues from the environment and learning to evolve so plants are amazing
1: yeah, no, they're fascinating, no doubt, and I think that's one of the topics of discussion that are going to be coming up, or even right now they're they're in discussion, but more of the popular discussion in the future is that ideal plant intelligence, you know, like um, either, either conscious, sentient intelligence is one thing, that's our perception, but then Just Mm -hmm. the ability to adapt and learn from the environment even if it's not in a conscious manner just the learning mechanism is pretty interesting like you say you know you touch it enough times and then this thing's like okay well at this point i get it now it's no longer yeah interesting um okay so right so before that we were getting into you had mentioned a little bit about how uh they also they being the invasive plants also um they acquire nutrients and water from the soil which is taking resources from other plants so how like is it is the plant like I mean like does the plant know that there's only a limited amount of resources and it's like I'm going to take the majority of them or like how is that happening like when you let's say you do an experiment where you introduce it like how is this thing going to come in and take the water and nutrients from the plant
2: Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And, um, so basically, um, every species has, has some sort of like environmental tolerance. And so they can only like grow with certain conditions. And so these species, like a lot of our native ones, um, they've evolved to grow in these areas where, um, we get rain mostly in the winter time, you know, here and there. Um, but, um, yeah, so I'm sorry, I kind of am scatterbrained. A, uh, what know, was the question know. again? <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, so um, so how are so how exactly are invasive plant species? What are what is there a specific technique in taking nutrients from the oh, ecosystem, yeah. taking water?
2: Damn. Yeah, and so um, uh, the way we kind of measure this, like when we're doing experiments, is uh, we call them functional traits, and so basically, um, it's really cool um so we call it like the leaf economic spectrum and basically by measuring a bunch of like leaf and root traits we can measure how fast and how much nutrients they actually allocate into like because some species care more about putting energy into growing seeds for the next generation Mm. um and other species that grow in some more like harsh environments they grow they take a lot of these resources to actually Um, invest more into their roots so that they, so that then they can have more access to those, like to the water um, and nutrients in that. But in terms of, but, but um, underground, there is a lot of like communication because Hmm. fungi are like really important for plants. And so a lot of the times fungi, uh, so like some mushrooms uh, will basically create this like um, association with plants where then, um they're basically allowing the plant to get more water by like Mm. by like tapping into this like mushroom network
1: yeah mushrooms are uh fungus mushrooms they're very fascinating because they from what i understand from what i which isn't much but just from what i've seen it's like they're they seem to be very good at that uh redistributing resources creating networks long networks huge networks like like forest size networks you know so so it's interesting that they do i mean you know not to kind of look at it from like a, a live perspective it's like they're kind of being the the gatekeepers of the, the system in some sense which is interesting you know i'm sure i'm sure mm-hmm. something will come out of that in the future more more research of how exactly that's happening um because you could imagine that if there is some amount of finite resources within an ecosystem right if you only have so much water so much nutrients you can only have so much life that's going to sustain unless you're able to create some even distribution or something Mm -hmm. like that which is mother nature doing its work so i you know that's pretty fascinating and i want to ask so based off you know you said there that some some on the leaf spectrum some are prioritizing you said uh seeding some are prioritizing nutrient gathering things like that um in your experience do you see any uh common factors that are like what are the determining factors in that and that if there are any like is there some like preconditions that say okay this plant's more likely to want to seed this is more of a seeding plant is there a precondition uh, okay.
2: yeah yeah and so um it's really cool so basically based off the size of a leaf so for example um here i'll show you so this plant this is one leaf it's like really big right and no, so leaf, yeah. um Yeah. So, um, what that leaf tells us is basically is, um, so this leaf evolved, um, to grow in the understory of like, um, forest. So like, think about like Amazon forest, there's a bunch of trees, there's a bunch of shade. Right. Mm. And so these plants are basically trying to grow and like monsteras are known for this to have like their Swiss cheese, um, like these. And so for these plants, basically, their strategy is to have as big of a leaf as possible to try to capture any light that might go through the, the canopy of the trees. Oh,
0: um,
2: versus we have some of like, let's see, some of these plants are like yeah. where their, their leaves are like much smaller. And so um, with the leaf economic spectrum, we basically say, you know, some plants tend to be more resource conservative. So they, they take up. Resources at a much slower rate, um, and then things that um, basically have these big leaves—they um, are just really good. And actually, going back to invasive species, invasive species tend to be resource acquisitive, so they're just like—they don't—they just get to a system, and kind of like you were saying, like how do they, How does a plant know how much to take in the system if there's limited? So invasive species basically don't care; they just get to a system and <laughs> they just—and right. they're yeah basically i i study annual plants the only plants that live for one year and mm-hmm. so um this can vary for like invasive trees or shrubs that live longer um but for the plants that live one year basically at least the ones that i study their goal is to like get to an area get all the nutrients and just make enough seed so that they could come back next year versus our our native plants they just kind of grow slower and are kind of taking their time because they're like man what if there's a heat wave you know we know what it's like down here in LA you
1: know interesting um all right so just to get back on a little bit of the methods of invasion so uh another one that I have on the list here is says that not only so we mentioned using chemicals to attract pollinators but now it says here that invasive plants also possess toxins and chemicals to deter herbivores so you know, another way to well, one way to survive is to outgrow. Another way to survive is to not die. You know, so if you don't, if the plant wants to keep going, it's got to make sure that the deer or the whatever herbivores are in the ecosystem aren't going to eat it, so it can keep mm-hmm. growing. So, uh, what's that about? Like, how have you seen that plants that are deterring herbivores yeah. or things like that?
2: And so that's more of what we call like the novel weapons, and it's because um, and the reason why invasive species do so well is because like you're saying, plants, you know, they can't move. So basically they evolved their own little, like, methods, like roses. They have their little prickles and mm-hmm. their thorns and all that stuff. And so for these species that are – they evolve somewhere else, um, but then they left those herbivores and those enemies. And basically they get to this new area and they're like, oh, sweet, that animal that I was trying to, like, protect myself my whole life, you know, by all these generations, it's not there anymore. And so it does so much better. But um, it's really common for um, – For species to actually come in and have those kind of negative chemicals, Um, so uh, I just think of like something I tell people is cilantro. Like cilantro, that flavor that it has, it was uh, originally to like deter herbivores, but turns (laughs) out we like it, you (laughs) know. Well, some of us like it. it
1: Mexicans, that's for sure.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and so um, sometimes you know, I mean, that's one of the things that like some um, some uh some plants can actually have like these like psychotoxic like psychedelic right. chemicals mm-hmm. and so like all these chemicals that it's producing um we call them secondary compounds so anything that's like not absolutely necessary to just survive and it's more of like secondary um all of these extra chemicals that it produces it's just to like try to like get away from everybody but it ends up for a lot of invasive plants like uh, in california uh, I just remember during the super bloom people were posting pictures of like look at the super bloom it's so beautiful and it was all invasive plants and I was like no you should take
1: pictures of the native plants. I mean, you're like on the like,
2: In LA we have these like black mustard so you see these really tall plants like mm-hmm. they can get like up to six feet tall and they have like yellow flowers all over the hillsides um, like in Pomona and down the coast like in Malibu. Oh yeah
1: yeah I know what you're talking about.
2: Yeah, so that plant, it's it's invasive, and that plant actually reduces, um, it like sends these chemicals in the soil. It's allelopathic. It's called gly- um, uh, glycosides, I think it's called the chemical. Yeah. But anyway, so that chemical actually doesn't let other seeds germinate. So um, mm-hmm. it's pretty crazy. It basically is just like, okay, this is now my area. I contaminate it. Now, anybody who's within a distance around me, now those seeds cannot grow
1: wow it's interesting um and then another method you had kind of touched on a little bit but we didn't really get into was uh taking advantage of wind patterns and seed dispersal right because mm-hmm. if you catch a good wind a good draft and you shoot seeds into the air you could really cover a lot of land with your seeds you know and that i would imagine that would cause a, a rapid and unpredictable and unexpected growth in these invasive species so uh so how does that happen like how do you how do you prevent because that seems like it's pretty hard right like do you put a net and catch all this like what do you do <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah well i mean a great example of this is the dandelion that's like the common weed in your lawn oh, right. so think that was, that. yeah that was a plant that was brought by colonizers um for like i think it had like medicinal properties and so that's actually how we have a lot of invasive species is that either somebody plants them in their yard because they think it's nice or it comes accidentally um, and so that plant, um, I mean, you know, people blow them for fun, which please don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> it's that's awesome. it's, it's good
1: luck. You get a wish.
2: <laughs> yeah, you get a wish, but you also spread the eggs <laughs> and- <laughs> We Very actually good. have, so we have native species that do the same thing. So, I mean, you look up, um, they're called <laughs> silver, silverpust, Europapis linlii that's a California native plant that you can blow in a wish and you'll throw good seeds out.
0: Um,
2: but yeah, so like, that's a good question. Like with wind, just like having these species move, like how do you limit the spread of these species? Um, so it's also really common for seeds to get attached to our clothes. So actually when you go hiking, it's really important. Um, if you can please scrub your boots before and after and your, and just your clothes, because, um these seeds are just so good they've evolved to just be really good hitchhikers um and so we always tell people like um if you're gonna go off-roading you know please just like make sure you clean your tires or something um but in my car i actually carry a little brush and like before and after hikes i like brush off my boots to make sure i'm not bringing in or taking out any seeds yeah Um, i think you're the only person
1: doing that (laughs) so you you definitely need to educate some people on that because yeah people are are scrubbing their boots unfortunately but i mean i can see why that would be dangerous right because you know you step 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 and next you know you Mm -hmm. come back home you go miles away to go on a hike and then you bring that you basically help the plant travel miles to over here you know so
2: exactly yeah i think that's
1: the importance of education is to let people know Uh, be more aware and then you know that's kind of like i I don't know i think like if more people did that then they would obviously they would be more conscious of what's actually going on with the plants you know so maybe that's what it is we just gotta uh, create the awareness um so we've been discussing so far the methods that the plants use but usually those are invisible right like you can't really see the nutrients maybe you can but not common. you're not gonna just like the plants not gonna be like hey i'm i'm poisoning the ecosystem so those are mostly invisible you know but Mm-hmm. if we go on to something that you can see right let's say um can you discuss a case or something that you've seen where the plant not only uh affects the ecosystem but actually physically affects the landscape uh you know I think we'll we'll talk about it later but there's actually a case where one plant was uh it was brought in to actually stop erosion I guess this the uh-huh. roots help firm the soil or something like that but So have you ever in your studies or in your, you know, just travel seen where an invasive species did harm physically to the landscape as well, not just to the plants?
2: Yeah, so um, there's a few um, individual or a few species that do that. So um, one example is um, the uh, salt cedar tamarisk. So that one is one that California spends a lot, a lot of money on. Um, basically, because it does change the like the hydrology of these rivers, um, and so um, this species is it's native to um, Eurasia, I believe. Um, but basically, this the species comes in, um, and it's really good at holding in salts, and so it'll physically change the landscape in terms of um, uh, it's basically depositing these like big pools of uh, salt that. Uh, Influences like e- the, everything that's living in the rivers, um, but also—that's
1: um, fascinating. I mean, there's so, so it's there's so the water supply.
2: Yeah, basically. Um, but then there's a lot of like back and forth in the community because there's some good thing. Well, the birders basically like this species because birds like to nest in it. Right. Um, but besides birds, there's really no benefit of this species.
1: <laughs> right, and that goes back to our question of 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 making the decision right it's like how which is a I, in my mind is an interesting and complicated issue it's like how do you how do you decide to step in like what at one point you decide okay maybe we should assist this ecosystem because it's not looking good you know so like in that case i think that's more of where you would see the controversy of it's like you know birds or plants well there's more plants than birds so you know is that the way we decide you know it's an interesting thing you know it's definitely uh us, like you mentioned the data will probably tell
0: mm-hmm. <coughs>
1: excuse me um so all right so if we go back to again the global scale right so we have local plant invasions which are probably going to be easier just on the size right on the scale probably be easier to mitigate through mm-hmm. awareness and education but um how do you continue to prioritize communal efforts you know like on a local level but also keep the idea that um there's a global nature in the invasive species right it's it's uh i mean it could be seen as evolution essentially right it's like we call them invasive species and their nature's invasion from what we perceive but um how do you balance that like what, what like you know keeping a local s- ecosystem flourishing but but deciding when it's not too far i don't even know if that made sense that makes sense no
2: that that's that totally makes sense because that's what a lot of conversations are like and mm. so moving forward the way we're trying to address this is uh, well uh, a few papers have been coming out which i'm so excited and it's basically calling for like cross-border communication because these like these species are invasive in multiple countries like you're saying you know it's like the same species but it might act different in these different areas Um, and so what's really helping is like when scientists from um, like if we don't just focus on science in North America you know there's a lot of good science going on in South America and Africa Mm -hmm. and all these other continents and so we're noticing that you know it's actually a much better strategy to be talking about how the species um, like evol- or act in all these different areas. Right. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so what you were talking about, it just reminded me of a lot of conversations that I've been a part of where we're basically it's land practitioners. So people who are actually out there on the land, you know, like uh, dealing right. with this researchers who are, you know, studying the more fundamental side of it. And then people are funding it who are like, okay, so like, where should I give my limited funding to? You basically have to like, just weigh out the pros and cons of, um, a big issue is like, how do we manage this invasive species without killing all of the natives too? Mm. So like some of my work has, has done, has been with herbicides to be like, how can we use herbicides in a way that will kill this one plant, but like not kill all of our native plants as well? And so it's a lot of back and forth. (laughs)
1: yeah that okay that brings up a good question too right that that was actually one of the questions I had was the herbicide discussion right because that's controversial in some sense we've seen for example in the past Monsanto the the GMO um uh, genetically modified yeah GMO okay <laughs> I'm gonna make sure I didn't get that um <laughs> the GMO farms you know where they uh are growing these mass farms in order to feed the population and they're using herbicides and there's been controversy because there's been negative side effects and that also plays into another question that you arose in my mind which is how how much does this have to coincide with also you mentioned the land workers which farmers right farmers work the land they're growing crops they're growing the crops for the big cities Mm -hmm. how that's an interplay of three right there. You've got the invasive species, you've got the farmer, and then you've got the method of curing the invasive species without damaging the farm. So that's a, that's a equation that you got to kind of figure out. And, and it's important because if you make a mistake, then you could destroy a a supply of food, you know? So, so that's obviously got to be taken with a, a degree of seriousness. Not only that, but also what, like how, how, how is that being figured out? What's the tactics being used? Uh, what what separates a good herbicide a good herbicide from a from one that's ineffective or or overly dangerous you know
2: yeah so that's a uh, that's a good question and um so i work more in the wildlands and not necessarily agricultural oh. um areas but You're right, in the agricultural part, that's a whole another facet because it's like these are plants that we're going to be eventually consuming, right? right? And so that's a whole different thing. But the stuff that I work on is more of like, um, okay, so we do want to focus on this one invasive species. Um, And uh, so herbicides are used very commonly because they're very cheap. Um, And so it is controversial in um, my personal opinion – personal me, not, not associated with <laughs> or anything it, yeah. uh it's just that um so i think herbicides have a time and a place i don't necessarily think they should be sold you know like at target or home depot and like mm-hmm. anybody can just use it because it does have very negative impacts for um, insects you know we're killing a bunch of our insects um but i do think herbicides are super useful um for like what uh managing invasive species um in like these wild areas where, um, and that's where in order to see whether the herbicide works or not, we basically, um, when we're spraying the herbicides, we look at, okay, what is it doing to the invasive species? But um, we look at what is it doing to the rest of the species that we're not trying to manage? So the other native species and other plants who are there. Um, And the way we do that is, um, we basically look at how the abundance is changing but we also look at the seed bank so we take um these big samples of the soil and we will actually sort out to be like what's living in the soil that potentially might not be showing up um and so it just gives us a better idea of like how the community is responding um to herbicides because sometimes herbicides can absolutely um just decimate everything so um it's like a joke like well Herbicides are like the number one uh, method to manage invasive species because they work really well at killing plants. But then the bad side is they're really they're really good at killing plants. <laughs> so you've got the way out
1: of which, which ones should I use? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> too good at killing plants. Yeah, we don't want you to kill all of them. Um, and that's so. All right. Well, I guess I don't. I don't want to keep poking at the agriculture. That's not your expertise. But I mean, that's that's fascinating to me because it's like that's an issue then you got to figure out how to create a balanced herbicide but you know who knows how many factors go into that so that's interesting um but i mean cuz when i again like that was something that was a big discussion maybe like i don't even know 5 years ago you know when when it was like a big uh controversy of like yeah you're killing all the insects you're killing other plants you're killing some even of the crops are dying, you know, so, Mm -hmm. yeah, I definitely see, I'm not too familiar, but I, I mean, obviously that indicates that we don't really know what we're doing, we're just kind of trying stuff, you know, and then it's like, you got to be careful with what you try, um, okay, so the last, um, before we get into the, you know, the invasive species game, I'll call it, um, before we get into that, I just want to ask, so the last question about how we can counteract these invasive species so we mentioned how this is usually a product of evolution right they're figuring out how to integrate within this uh, e- ecosystem they're figuring out what to prioritize and how can we and when I say we I mean you <laughs> any colleges <ecologists, everybody laughs> colleges but we as humans how can we um use those principles of evolution to counteract like, for example, can you trick an invasive species into thinking that they're taking the nutrients and then through that you kind of deter them from affecting the whole ecosystem, for example?
2: Yeah, oh my gosh, that's so exciting. So um, that's something that, uh, so restoration ecologists are absolutely trying to do. And so we talked about like um, invasive species, like if we get a, a rain event, then they'll, they'll start growing, right? And so one way to actually trick invasive species um, is like in the summer, you can like flood the field with water, and our native species have evolved to know that hey, um, we usually don't get rain in like July, you know, and so it's not a good time to germinate right now because I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'm gonna end up dying. But invasive species that haven't evol- evolved here, we can essentially trick them and just like flood the field, and basically the seeds will start growing and then they basically won't get another rain event until, like, November, so they're not going to make it, and so that's one way to trick invasive species to growing really fast and dying. All
1: right, that's interesting. Um, Is there any other method, or is that, like, the most popular one?
2: Um, So, you mentioned using evolution, and so um, I talked about functional traits earlier, and so what we'll do sometimes is we'll look at, like, well, what are the traits of this invader? So, like, Um, when does it grow, how does it take up nutrients. And basically what we'll do is we'll take a native plant that has similar evolutionary strategies, um, and we try to plant that plant so that it'll take all the resources before invasive.
0: Interesting.
2: And so it's called like um, – it's like – yeah so like it's like it's restoration where you're basically trying to um align Mm -hmm. similar functional traits so that basically you're trying to take up uh your native community is taking up all the available resources and there's basically no room for invasive to come in
1: right that's interesting too because if let me let me think this through so if you're using a more native uh, a native plant with similar evolutionary principles therefore it would probably directly complete compete with the invasive species mm-hmm. is that having any effect on the plant that you're planning like is it becoming more effective afterwards i don't know does that even make sense oh
2: that oh like that's a good question like is it itself becoming a better competitor because yeah, you're like yeah um i mean potentially yeah, yeah. we can be potentially making this
1: like, what if we create a super plant by accident? Like, we create like, <laughs> like a super evolved. I mean, I don't know. That's just my <laughs> imagination. But just hearing that, I'm like, hmm. Because
2: I think the process of evolution happens um, yeah. at a rate that maybe we wouldn't see a super plant. Yeah, okay, uh, but yeah, okay. if it does happen, you know,
1: that's being, something new um, um, to study. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Um all right so 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 far we've explained ways that these invasions can occur so now we're going to go into some examples in which they have occurred throughout history and maybe you can give us your assessment of each situation and kind of what you see it and um yeah so i'm pretty yeah so for the most part these are just scenarios and then uh so maybe like a solution that you could give us or how yeah as an ecologist given this the situation how you would approach it um Okay, so our first example here is the kudzu, which you mentioned, and these all have scientific names. <laughs> I don't know how to say them. Uh, P- Puraria montana var. laboda. Okay, mm-hmm. I feel like I just casted a Harry Potter spell or something. <laughs> um, all right, so the, it says the kudzu was introduced in the United States in the late nineteenth century as a solution for soil erosion. It was promoted as a fast-growing plant that could stabilize slopes and prevent erosion. However, its rapid growth and ability to cover large areas quickly turned into a problem. Kudzu's vines can smother and shade out native vegetation, leading to loss of biodiversity. Its impact particularly low no, excuse me. Its impact particularly noticeable in southeastern US, the United States where it's earned the nickname the vine that ate the South. So, Yeah. Can you tell us how you see that situation and how we could possibly prevent that from happening again
2: yeah so this is like a classic example of an invasive species like if for anybody listening if you haven't seen you should google this because kudzu invasions are pretty wild they'll like take over like complete barns and like trees and it's just like only this one vine um so this i think is funny because like you mentioned and they brought it in to like stabilize for like soil erosion right Mm -hmm. and sometimes we're so desperate to just like we have this problem like we just need to do something like it's yeah. okay and so we just threw it at it but the thing is if like, we didn't know enough about it that um, it ended up not doing what we wanted to because right invasive species don't act the way they do at home all the time mm-hmm. and so yeah. we're like That's oh yeah like in Japan you know it, it does this like really cool <laughs> stuff so yeah. it's gonna do the same thing and this but if you think about it, like the climate's different the community's different um, uh, but yeah, and so the reason this plant is so hard to manage is because, um, the only way to get rid of it is basically killing the root system because, um, it spreads like really easily in the soil through. So if you just kind of like cut all of, like the, the, whatever you see above the soil, it's going to come back and like really aggressive. And so, um, the only way to get rid of this plant, well, one is don't bring it, don't plant it anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and two would be, um the only way would be to like just go after that root system and just make sure you've completely pulled the whole thing
1: out all right cool so you gotta kill it at the source um the next example so next we have the Japanese knotweed um fallopia japonica all right cool uh it says the Japanese knotweed was brought to Europe and North America in the 19th century as an ornamental plant due to its attractive appearance However, it's aggressive growth and okay, you might be able to help me with this term R- rhizomatis rhizoma, rhiz- oh yeah rhizomatis? So the rhiz- yeah yeah uh-huh. sorry
2: oh no sorry yeah just um yeah, the the rhizome so basically it's just um it's roots that grow underneath kind of like what I was just saying that they spread
1: okay so the the rhizomatis root system or rhizomatous root system can cause significant damage to buildings roads and infrastructure it also outcompetes native plants leading to reduced biodiversity and ecological disruption and then it says its resilience and ability to spread through fact through fragments of its rhizomes can make it a challenging invasive species to control so this sounds like something that's not going to be as easy to to calm comb- but how do you guys fight against those rhizomes those uh rhizomatous rhizomatous uh root mm-hmm. systems
2: yeah, it's so um, for Japanese knotweed specifically, um, managing it is hard because, um, well, for a lot of these invasive species, because not only, okay, it's hard to kill the plant itself, but we talked about earlier that these plants come with, like, their own chemicals and stuff. So sometimes they can, like, physically change the chemistry in the soil that can, um, that can inhibit our natives from coming back. And so for this species, again, you would have to, like, go after the rhizomes, but it can be really hard because they spread pretty fast and like vegetatively. So that just means that essentially they clone themselves. So like if I, if, uh, when we're like getting rid of the invasive species, like if you were to like, just drop a little rhizome, then boom, you can just start a whole invasion from there. And so it's just being really careful and making sure. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And what, what exactly is a rhizome?
2: Yeah, so it's a good question. So a rhizome is basically um, it's like the bottom. So we have like the above ground plant, hmm. and so the rhizome would be basically if I lift this up and uh, we create these like kind of like bulbs. Yeah, um, and basically uh, those bulbs can spread um, and start up a whole new plant. So it's like uh, it's like a just a part of the root
1: okay that's interesting so yeah I could see how that would be um definite and it's interesting how you know in in most of these cases it, they're brought because they look pretty and or something like that or you know and I wonder because I mean obviously I don't know how much on purpose it is but it's like it is interesting that beauty is an aspect of the plant in in to like the decision of what a human would possibly purchase in plant so it's like huh I mean, that's just a crazy theory, but, like, I wonder if plants are, like, evolving to be beautiful so that we can plant them in this, so they can, invade. I don't know, something to think about. You know
2: what? Um, That's an interesting thought, because we know that plants co-evolved with um, insects to be, like, showier and prettier so they can attract more bees. So that would, that's a really interesting thought, that they're basically doing the same thing. They're co-evolving with humans.
1: Yeah, right, because it's, like, uh, I mean yeah it's like anything it's like a, a pretty girl or something like she's just more <laughs> likely to get married like because you know she, she's probably i mean i don't know you know just i guess yeah, but yeah. it's like because there's an attractiveness it's like there's more of an incentive to have it around and, uh, that sounds fucked up but but you know when i'm talking about the plant you know it's like there's it's mm-hmm. you want these pretty plants these pretty diverse plants in your garden yeah so in that choice you're gonna pick pretty plants so it's interesting that a lot of these are ornamental in that way it's like they're evolving mm-hmm. knowing that they're invasive if they know i don't know if they know i'm just saying <laughs> things, but, but they're using that against us instantly. it's interesting um all right so the next example the water hyacinth am i saying that right the hyacinth
2: yeah 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 that's a really really bad one <laughs> Okay.
1: so the water hyacinth was introduced into various reasons again as an ornamental plant for its beautiful purple flowers purple flowers um, however, its ability to reproduce rapidly and... Oh, sorry. Its ability to reproduce rapidly and form dense mats on the water surface disrupts ecosystems. These mats blo- block sunlight from reaching underwater plants, leading to decreased oxygen levels and fish kills. Wow. Um, yeah. Additionally, the water hyacinth can clog waterways, hinder navigation, and impact water quality. Wow. So that's a, this one... I, I didn't even read this one before. This one is very <laughs> interesting because... It's not only affecting plants it's affecting it's killing the fish it's it's Mm -hmm. disrupting the the waterways and hindering navigation so it's also affecting people's ability to move through things and the water quality so i mean what's what's up with that like why would there be a plant that could that just completely destroys the ecosystem i mean
2: yeah so this is another one that if you haven't seen a picture of i would mm. say you should google it because it's an aquatic plant and you can you'll see pictures of like boats where just like it's surrounded by this invasive species and so you can imagine that there's a lot of things that photosynthesize in the water whether it's like a phytoplank- phytoplankton or if it's um you know some aquatic plants and so basically like uh, like you mentioned it creates like these big mats where um it doesn't let light go in and so um these like phytoplankton or whatnot, then they can't photosynthesize and create oxygen. So then the, and it just, and then the fishes can't breathe because there's a lack of oxygen in the water and then they die. And so it just creates this like cascading effect. But this thesis is bad because it creates a lot of seeds. Um, and I think I read somewhere, I don't know how accurate this is, but I read that um, it can create like thousands, one plant can create thousands of seeds. Wow. And each seed can live up to, like, 20 years. Damn. And so, yeah, and so it's really hard to get rid of it.
1: Yeah. Damn, that's interesting. See, that's one where I would say, like, I mean, just reading this is, like, that's a good example for an invasive species that you really don't want to let grow, get out of hand. Because, I mean, killing fish, taking oxygen from the water, disrupting the quality of the water, I mean, that's, that's a very selfish plant, you know? It's like... <laughs> yeah. All eyes on me. Like, you know, forget about everybody else. Um,
2: yeah, I'm pretty sure it's illegal to, like, have as a plant, like, okay. as a health yeah. plant in Florida because it's so bad. So you're not even allowed to have one.
1: Yeah, and then Florida's got the swamps and things like that. So I imagine that, you know, that could get out of hand very easily. Yeah. Um Okay, so the next one is the the purple loose strife. Loose strife. Mm-hmm. Lithrum salicari. Um <laughs> Um, the purple loose strife was introduced to North America in the 1800s. Again, you know, we have this recurring theme uh, as an ornamental plant. Oh, this one. And for medicinal uses. However, it quickly escaped cultivation and established itself in the wetlands. Its aggressive growth crowds out native wetland plants, reducing habitat for wildlife and altering weather, uh, excuse me, wetland ecosystems. The loss of native plants can impact insects and birds that rely on them for food and shelter. So, uh, again, another interesting case where, but this one as it says more specific to wetlands and what's the difference mm-hmm. between an evasion on a wetland, let's say, versus an evasion on just a meadow or something.
2: Yeah. So, um, that's a good question. And so, um, I talked about like invasive species kind of being like a case by case. And so it's interesting that sometimes invasive species can act, can affect different ecosystems. So, um, wetlands tend to be um more vulnerable to things just because they're connected to like the waterways and like um there's a bunch of like endemic species so that means that like that species is only found there in that area and um and like metals and grasslands i mean it still can be pretty detrimental but i think it just kind of depends on like how it's actually impacting
1: All Right. okay so so resources available also the navig- the way that plants are able to navigate. Okay.
2: That's interesting. Yeah, and this plant the seed can live up to three years, I think. But it's still it <laughs> it's still produces cool. enough. I think the main problem with this plant is that um, it can reproduce. Like the other plant was like, okay, it can reproduce from rhizomes. So this plant can actually reproduce from a stem. So if you just like leave like a twig or something, the whole plant can like come back from that like that one stem. Wow.
1: Well talk about um or resilience talk about resilience yeah. um <laughs> all right so this last one i, I want to go over the details because it's interesting and then we could like speed through the last five just because i don't want to keep taking up too much every time but um so the last one that we'll get into details with is the giant hogweed uh herac oh, oh yeah uh, heraclium man man tagazi i mean these are some crazy names um it says the giant hogweed was introduced to europe and north america again as an ornamental plant this is the interesting part it says its sap contains photosensitizing chemicals that can cause severe burns and blisters when exposed to the sunlight a condition known as and i'm probably gonna mess this up phytophotodermatitis um This possesses a risk to people who come in contact with the plant. Additionally, giant hogweed's aggressive growth can shade out native plants, impacting local biodiversity. So that's interesting because this is the first example, except the next one, but this is the first example where we see it actually has a negative effect on humans. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Is that a common trait in invasive species?
2: Um, Not super common, although one of the species that I am working with or that worked with for my dissertation, it's called um, common name is snake met because it smells really bad. And actually in Arizona, there's been some reports that this species is actually causing like respiratory issues. And so there are other species that do directly impact uh, humans. Uh, But yeah, I think this invasive species is funny because it was brought in because if you've ever seen giant hogweed, it's big, so it's like I'm only five foot four, and so they always like tower over me. So it's really tall, and they were brought over here because it makes these like really nice, like big flowers. Um, but yeah, so this species, like you said, is um, uh, phytodermatitis or something, yeah, something like that. Like that. <laughs> yeah, so basically, sure. the sap, like if you touch it, it'll physically like it reacts with the sun and um basically dermatitis is just it gets like inflamed and itchy and it burns and that can last up to days so in areas where this species is invasive there's a bunch of signs everywhere like do not touch it like stay away and so ma- you can imagine that managing this invasive species requires like extra care then because then yeah, you're like well man. handling it you know there's like different precautions
1: yeah that sounds bad it sounds bad yeah. um all right, so again, I'll go through the last five quickly. I'll just say the names, and then maybe you could just give us some details on what you know about the plant and how it's been invasive. Um, so the next one is the English ivy, Hedera helix. So can you tell us yeah. about the ivy?
2: So um, this one, again, it was um, brought into at least North America because it's a really common house plant. Like um, if you go to – like coffee shops always have them hanging in the corners and stuff. And so it's really common but um because it's a vine it can climb um uh, like trees basically and or like any um uh like anything that is climbable this plant will basically grow up and stuff but the problem with these invasive species is um okay I'll give you this example Harvard do you know that like those old buildings like they always have like ivy hanging off yes yeah okay so actually that costs a lot of money for Harvard because um uh, certain ivies can actually release chemicals that will disintegrate brick. So it's oh, like, wow. yeah. So structural it's like you have damage, to be. Yeah. yeah. So it actually creates structural damage, and so you can imagine if it does that to your house. Like, what it's doing to these like trees in nature. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, that one's pretty
1: bad. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting to see how nature reacts to the things that we make. Sometimes, yeah. usually it's not very positive. You know, usually it's destroying what we made, which is like. I yeah. don't know. That, maybe that's nature trying to tell us something. Um, Australian, the Australian Acacias? A- uh, acacias? Acacias, there you go. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, so um, these Acacias, um, actually, I don't know a lot about them because uh, I mostly study invasive, like, annuals, like I said, so they're just plants that live, like, one to two years. Um, so, actually, I don't know a lot about... Um, uh, invasive Australian acacias other than that um, the main thing is that they basically outcompete so just like uh, a lot of our native um, a lot of our invasive species and in, but I don't know much about this yeah
1: this one says that it was introduced for nitrogen fixing. do you know
2: Oh okay so this is that's actually a common problem that native invasive species can have so in Hawaii, um, the introduction of nitrogen-fixing plants actually caused the nutrient cycling and uh, to completely change in Hawaii. And, and that affects, again, how other species are taking up nutrient from the environment. So sometimes nitrogen-fixing um, uh, species will make the area have more nitrogen. And it turns out that invasive species really do well and grow much faster and like um, nitrogen much better than our native species
1: yeah okay that makes sense so it's essentially creating its own its own optimal environment which is Mm -hmm. not optimal for the native species okay that's interesting um all right let's see we're we're down to the last two here uh so the African Olive um it's this one that says it was introduced into Australia for oil producing fruits uh yeah however it's invaded so the same story but this one is interesting because it's introduced for oil so to produce a resource right Mm -hmm. however it ran kind of crazy so so that's an olive how does an olive I mean my understanding of an olive is this little round thing that you throw into like a or something so (laughs) so like how doesn't that olive plant do all this damage
2: yeah, that's a good question, and so the the problem with this species is that, um, so it's an African olive, and it can grow, it, it evolved in this really dry, arid climate, and so the problem is that when it goes um, and invades these areas, um, so this is a tree, and it produces a lot of shade, right, and it's like, it's not the type of plants that you commonly see where it's invading, and so basically, um, it's, adding this layer where it's not letting the native species get enough light to then grow and create their seeds and, you know, regenerate the next generation. And So, um, that's how this species
1: is. Let just let just say. Yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. Cause we often thinking about, we're often thinking about like, again, like, Oh, we need oil. Let's bring an oil making plant. Not thinking about what the plant might actually do besides just mm-hmm. make oil. Oh, uh, let's see uh okay so the last one is the gorse ulex europaeus. Europaeus. i don't know uh but it says that <laughs> it says that its dense growth can create fire hazards as it easily catches fire and spreads um and then of course it's also competing for the resources so it's also it's destructive combined with the fact that it's Taking resources and, um, all right, let me see. My question here is Is that's not on purpose, right? That's just take that's just it not being in its optimal like environment because, like you said, right? Plants in dry lands are probably more adapted to dryness. So, if you take a dry land plant and bring it to, or I'm sorry, wetlands, the opposite. If you bring a wetland plant, bring it to maybe it won't be so good at protecting against fire. I don't know if that makes mm-hmm. sense. But in this case, you know, um, what can you tell us about it? Introduce to New Zealand.
2: Yeah, and so, um, Gorse. This is another one that um, it's kind of like, like I talked about the the fire risk that sometimes we have. But um, I think so. I'm not familiar too familiar with Gorse. So I mostly work with like Western invasive species. Um, but this kind of reminds me like eucalyptus trees. Eucalyptus trees are super common here, so they're native to Australia. Um and so you talked about this gorse being having similar like um fire hazards. Mm. So eucalyptus tree, they create so much sap um that actually um if it was to go on fire, it literally explodes. And so it's a oh. big hazard. And we see a lot of these near residential areas, which is really concerning. Um but uh, sorry, I just switched it. I'm gonna replace gorse with uh, eucalyptus it's here okay. just to talk yeah, about yeah. It. because basically um We planted eucalyptus in a lot of places because we thought it was going to be like a good foraging tree or I mean a good um, tree for like timber but it's not Um, but now these um, (laughs) just going back to like how difficult it is to manage uh, invasive species because um, eucalyptus it is allelopathic so around its little area on the tree it basically doesn't let anything germinate. if it catches on fire it literally explodes and will send like shards everywhere and then that will spread the fire um but one of the in san francisco um they're actually considered um historic now because they've been there for so long and they're home to um some native owls so you actually can't get rid of um eucalyptus in a lot of areas so it's kind of like that okay so when after an invasive species has been here for so long, when do you just give up and go? You know what?
1: <laughs> right, so, yeah, th- that goes yeah. way back to the one of the first questions that we touched on, which is like, what's the decision making process? And in that case, the decision is to let it just. You know, it's it's become the the ecosystem has embraced it in some sense. I guess you could say, right? The animals have started to move in. So yeah, now, now and if you think like, of yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh.
2: Mm-hmm. and if you think about how just how different like san francisco is now like how urbanized it is compared to what it used to be so um it, they kind of see it as like a safe haven for the owls because it's like well you oh, know if we so get rid though. of this where's the owl gonna lay his eggs and then then we're gonna have to worry about having this like bird go extinct or locally extinct or something
1: yeah that that's one thing i guess you know here as we're ending is like I think one of the most fascinating things about ecology and climate and even global economics things, systems that, you know, studies that are looking at systems that are on different magnitudes, you got local, you've got regional, and then you've got like global, you know, and it's hard to sometimes experiment definitely on a global scale, regional, a little bit less so and then local is probably the easiest where you can really pin it down and say okay yeah. you can get results and data from this local system so um you know uh i guess we could end with that like what's the future of ecology looking like you know um obviously you're in the field you're again congratulations you're uh, now a doctor in plant Thank biology you. with the in ecology so I mean you know hats off to you first and foremost but you're the face of the future of ecology essentially you're one of the representatives for the future of ecology so i want to know from you firsthand as we wind down here like what what does the future of ecology look like and for any prospect ecologists you know i know a lot of people like you mentioned that are really into plants you know you know they're they're the planty people you know they like their plants and stuff like that and maybe they would even find uh, a, a career in ecology interesting so uh i guess i asked a lot of questions there but first what's the future of ecology looking like from your perspective and then advice for anybody that may be looking for a career in the future
2: yeah so i'm i'm really optimistic about the future of ecology because um the field is really moving towards um kind of uh it's it's really moving towards being more communal like we're starting to realize of like oh we've like we can do much better and learn so much more if we integrate the community into our research because um, we've actually found that like in restoration ecology, so in these areas that are just like super degraded, um, when you actually create partnerships with the people who live there where you're trying to restore those lands, um, restoration projects just end up being much more successful because then the people who are around there are kind of also keeping an eye on it and being like, oh, like this is for the greater good. And so science communication, I think, is the future of ecology is really moving towards being better with science communication and communicating um, why ecology is so important. And my favorite thing about ecology is that, like, literally anybody, like, you could be, like, you, a sociologist, right? You can participate in ecology, anybody. Um, and so I think it's, that's really exciting. And we're really just moving. It's really interdisciplinary because to be an ecologist, you essentially have to know Um, chemistry and like physics and like biology and so you have to know all these things and so ecology is really becoming more um, interdisciplinary and so we're just making a lot of partnerships Um, like I'm going to be moving on to a postdoc at San Diego State and I'm really excited because that whole project we're also recognizing the value that traditional ecological knowledge brings because indigenous peoples have been managing the land for millennia right and so now it's basically it's really beautiful that the field of ecology is moving towards this like co-production of knowledge with indigenous groups and i'm really fortunate to be moving towards that route and um we basically just have to work together so uh, the future of ecology is looking great um (laughs) and then for any advice that i have for people um so i started as a physics major i also i liked plants but it wasn't until I got to college and I realized how much plants actually offer. Um, And I don't think everybody has to change their major and go into ecology, but I think um, just talk to people. Like for me, like, if anybody wants to talk about plants, you know, please feel free they email me. I'm always like down, but basically, if you're looking to start in this space, um, uh, just reach out, do some like volunteer events, like in, in, if you have the time if you're fortunate enough to have spare time because some of us don't can't just like volunteer to do things Mm -hmm. um yeah but um like when i was like on the fence of like whether i really wanted to go towards this field of ecology or not um i just started participating in like these weed removal events or like there's a community effort so you just get to meet other people that are also into like natural sciences and stuff um but yeah i think just Oh, I guess if you're going to be in this field, data collection and analysis is really important. So you can teach yourself R, which is free. It's a free resource. It's a programming programming languages that um, we primarily use to um, analyze our data. Um, and, I mean, I guess that's all. But basically reach out to people, especially um, one thing about scientists is they love to talk about their work. So, like, we can talk and talk and talk. So if you're, like, interested, just, like, shoot a scientist an email and then... You know,
1: we'd be happy to chat. Right, yeah, and I definitely learned a lot. So hopefully, uh, anybody who's listening, hopefully you guys also learned a lot. Um, well, yeah, that's that's interesting. That's fascinating. Uh, uh, and and again, congratulations on your achievements. Congratulations Thank on you. all this, all the work you've done. And and it seems like you're doing uh, some pretty noble work. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we can see this shift into education in the public because I think that i think that it it would be one of the things that would help create even a more uh not just aware obviously but happier society if we're able to see how we're directly helping and coinciding and being Mm -hmm. together one with nature you know uh rather than you know being the destructors that we've been so (laughs) far you know just like stepping on everything uh but yeah so I think that's it, uh, let me think real quick, is there any last things, is there anything you want to promote, is there any books or any studies or, or anything at all that you want people to be aware of? Um, well, I just want to say first of all, thank you, this is
2: amazing, I, I appreciate everything that you do because, um, yeah, you just cover so many topics and I just think that's amazing because you're basically doing what we're trying to start doing in ecology, <laughs> of like just trying to get the word out there, you know, and yeah. you're doing amazing at communication, But in terms of, like, things I would want to, oh, if you live in California, um, so there's this website, com, And so, basically, you can go and you can put in any address. So, you can put in your home address or, like, if you're, uh, or your work location or something. And it'll give you all the plants that would do well in that climate. And it will be, like, instead of grass. Uh, if you want a ground cover crop, so then you can put, then it'll give you a native species instead of going to Lowe's and buying one of those invasive species yeah. that we talked about. So, um, and you can, and by CalScape, you can put it based off of pollinators. So if you're like, I want my garden to have more um, butterflies, then you can just put that in the filter, and it'll tell you which plants will attract that. So, uh, just check out Kelscape.com.
1: All right, cool. So you guys check that out um and that's it for today folks uh again thank you to clarissa dr rodriguez for uh, for coming on and sharing her knowledge with us and hopefully you guys learned something and hopefully we could create some future ecologists or we could at least educate some people as to why we should be more aware more conscious and more careful with the environment and the ecosystem that we're within and moving forward how we could create a better relationship right um but yeah so again thank you guys uh that's been another episode of cut talk radio as always take care be safe and peace